We're actually beginning a new series this morning. We're in the season of Easter, and last week was so good to be able to gather with more folks and be outside and do things just a little bit different. It was so life-giving for me, and I hope it was for you guys as well. Uh, But we're beginning a new series. Uh, It's going to be on the Nicene Creed, which you hear us read every single Sunday. If you've been a part of Mosaic for any amount of time, you know that happens every time we come together. But we're going to be kind of drilling down into it, how we understand it, what this all means. And today we're actually going to be doing that through the lens of Deuteronomy 6. So if you guys want to open there, it's a very short passage, should be familiar to you. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, we want to use that as a lens to kind of understand where all of this comes from in the creed. This is Moses speaking to Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. The word of the Lord. So here's a a question I imagine is probably in your minds, um, why are we talking about the creed? We talk about the creed every Sunday, do we not? It's something we, we bring up week in and week out. It's something that's happening every time we gather. Jonathan explains it. I explain it. Someone else will explain it. Just about every time we say it, we want to remind you why we're doing this. Why is it necessary for us to do this? And it's a significant and, and central aspect of who we are in terms of worship, right? We'll talk about how we're diverse. We come from different backgrounds. We have different identities, different giftings, different stories, right? Yet we're beautifully unified in this set of beliefs, right? This is how we always want to explain it. But I think sometimes we want more than that. We want to to kind of really understand and, and get at why this is so important. Because In some sense, that does answer the question. This is why it's important for us as a gathered group of believers. This is why it's important for us corporately. But what about me? How is this important to me? These words that we read over and over again. Me as an individual. Why do I need this? Why is this significant for me? Right? We live in a a very individualistic culture. And so naturally our minds will go there. It's a, a reasonable question, right? And... I don't know about you guys, for me it can kind of feel a little bit like, it's like one of those covenants you're asked to sign sometimes, or like a waiver or a release. There's this sense, every time you say this, that you're kind of being asked to sign on the dotted line. Do you agree with all of this? You okay with all of this? We're asking you to sign on the dotted line every time. And I think if we're being real, the creed can kind of offend some of our our, our 20 first century sensibilities, our postmodern sensibilities. It can kind of make us a little uncomfortable, right? Like why should I, even as, as believers I think sometimes, why should I agree to something like this that doesn't necessarily feel all that connected to my personal experience, my personal life, my individual experience? Again, I understand its importance for us corporately, but me as an individual, I, I, I'm not sure. It shapes this body, but what about me? And I'll just begin by saying, this is what preachers do, by the way. We put questions in your mouths. And I just want to thank you guys for such erudite questions. You guys are are brilliant, and I'm always impressed. No, this is, I I noticed that as I'm saying it. You're so inquisitive. Um, 
But really, it is important, and I think these are things we, we kind of grapple with. These are things that we, we kind of wrestle with sometimes, especially in our moments of doubt, in our moments of, uh, of struggle and uncertainty. And I think we really have to consider who we are, where we come from, as a young, modern church in the middle of a, an urban setting, right? We see ourselves as very progressive. We see ourselves as very forward-thinking. And I think the creed has a way of reminding us how little our beliefs actually align with our culture's conceptions of truth. Every time we read it, there's this startling reminder of how different the culture's conception of truth is from our conception of what is true and real and good, right? But it's also the reverse as well, if you think about it. Every time I read the creed, I'm reminded how much I have very often been more shaped, more defined by modern thought than by these ancient words. It does both. It helps me to see how distinct, how unique this set of beliefs that we hold really is in the midst of our culture, but it also helps me to see in myself. It's like it's holding a mirror up to me in some of those moments of my life where I realize I'm, I'm, I'm actually more thoroughly postmodern than I am Christian in some of these ways. It helps me to see that. It opens my eyes to that. It reminds me how often I actually don't agree with the creed, right? I'm not saying that happens. I'm saying there are moments in our lives where you can find yourself going, practically, I don't believe this. Practically, this is not real for me. I'm not allowing it to shape me. It happens. And in a, a constantly changing culture like ours, if you think about it, these words serve to ground us. They serve as an anchor for us, as a community of Jesus followers. They have a way of grounding us. They keep us from drifting, being shaped more so by the direction our culture is taking or the direction our generation is taking, whatever that might be. There's a, a commentator, Luke Timothy Johnson, who wrote a book on the creed. And he makes this statement that I think is really helpful. He says, every time we read the creed together, it is a countercultural act. It's a countercultural decision that we're making. Every time we do it, it's really a whole lot more controversial than we recognize. And again, we can just kind of like read through it because it's customary. It's part of the rhythm of how we do things. But it's really very scandalous when it was originally written. And that's important for us to keep in mind. Another reason these conversations about the creed are so necessary is I think we need to, to understand what the creed actually is. Where does it come from? What is the creed and what is it not? Like what role does it play and, and what is it not intended to do here? Because the earliest creeds, these statements of belief, they arose in the early church because there were so many different divergent beliefs about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. All kinds of crazy stuff is being thrown around. People are spinning his story all kinds of different ways. And the church has to find a way to create some kind of consensus for what they believe is legitimate doctrine. They have to find a way to drill down and say, no, this is what we believe comes from the scriptures. This is what we believe has been passed down to us from the apostles. This is truth. And that's what they're doing in the creeds. The church had to find some sort of way to do all of this. And as a result, the creed that we read every single week is full of some of the most important 
and controversial stuff that we believe. It's filled with that. But the thing we have to keep in mind is it doesn't contain everything we believe. Like we're not trying to elevate to the level of Scripture. The creed is not Scripture. And it's never been meant to be read as if it was. It's meant to be read alongside Scripture, right? They, they kind of partner. And the, the creed is, is a, a distillation of Scripture. It's not a paraphrase of Scripture. It's a, meant to be a distillation, right? It's trying to, to help people see out of all of this, these are the things we think are important. And remember, it was written at a very specific moment in history. Their controversies are not necessarily the same as ours, but these words still continue to be important because throughout history, these controversies have come up again and again, right? So that means the creed is not scripture. It's meant to be read alongside it. They must remain together. And as simple as that sounds, it's shocking how often found a way to kind of like separate the two we found a way to kind of keep them separate i grew up in a tradition that certainly did not consider the creed as anything important and we kind of lose sight of this right but it happens in our culture as well i was thinking about it this week think about it for example in our culture despite the fact that the trends showing that very few people actually believe in jesus in the way that we do want to follow jesus or see jesus as messiah or lord Despite the fact that they're not necessarily followers of Jesus, there is in our culture a fascination with Jesus. Over and over again, you find that people want to know more about this historical Jesus, this Jewish revolutionary who upended the empire of Rome with this little cult he created around him, right? People are fascinated by Jesus. They want to talk about the Jesus they see in the Gospels, his incredible teachings, because they know there is no denying that Jesus has shaped our world and our culture. They want to talk about that, the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus of Scripture. They do not want to talk about the Jesus of the Creed. They do not want to talk about the Jesus who is the eternal Son of God. They don't want to talk about Jesus who was born of a virgin, who died and who was resurrected, who ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, enthroned forever as king. They don't want to talk about Jesus in that way. They want to talk about one part of who Jesus is. They want to see Jesus in one way, but not as we see him in the creed. The church, on the other hand, can make the opposite mistake. The church is interested in theology. We want to talk about theology, and we come back to these controversies all the time. We want to talk about this, especially in a season of Easter. We're always talking about things like resurrection. We're always talking about things like the virgin birth, who Jesus was, right? And very often, we spend a lot of time talking about the Jesus of the creed, and we lose a hold of the Jesus of the Gospels, how he lived, how he called us to live. And our culture is always calling that out. Didn't Jesus say this? They'll say. Don't you remember that? You can't separate them. They're meant to be together, right? We have to, to take what the early church has given us, both scripture and the Jesus of the creed. It's important. And as we do all of that, I think we actually get a far better picture and a far deeper understanding of who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what the creed is trying to do. We want to understand why it became so central to their worship, why it was a non-negotiable, why it really shaped and defined who they were as a group of believers in those early days. And I think part of what made the church so predisposed to things like creeds, it feels kind of foreign in our cultural sort of moment, 
But for them, they were predisposed to it because it had long been a part of the life of God's people. They had always done this sort of thing. That's why we read Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. It was a statement made by Moses, but it became a Jewish prayer. And there were few words more sacred than the Shema in the Jewish tradition. They had done this for a long time, spoken these words over one another, to one another. It made them distinct. These statements they were making made them unique in the ancient world. It came to define them, okay? Here, Moses says, listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is how it all begins. I don't know about you. You tell me that's one of the most profound statements in the Jewish tradition. I say it sounds pretty simplistic. Doesn't really sound all that revolutionary. Sounds kind of rudimentary, really, like an introduction into what it means to believe in God. Pretty simplistic. Not much there. And you can forget how revolutionary what they were saying really was. It sounds, at the simplest level, like... They're making a case for monotheism because they live in a world where they're surrounded by people who believe in not one God, but many gods, right? At the simplest level, that's what it seems like, right? As Christians, we hear maybe some aspect of the Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? He's three distinct persons, and yet he is one God, right? But there's more than that. The Jewish people, when they, they, they made this statement, they weren't just saying, we believe there's only one God. They were saying more than that, right? The Jewish people are aware that there's not just one God. They come from traditions. They were converted. They come from traditions where there's the worship of so many different gods. They're not trying to argue that there's only one God. There are many gods, and they know it, and they struggle with idolatry for that reason. They are prone in their lowest moments to worship those other gods instead. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. So what they're not arguing is that they believe only one God exists. They're doing something different. The Shema was a, re a reminder that, that Yahweh alone was their God. Yahweh is our only God. He's the only God we worship, and he's the only God who is capable of actually saving us. He's the only God who could deliver us from Egypt. He is the only God who can deliver us from Babylon. This is how they understood it. It was this constant reminder. Yahweh alone is our God. We worship Yahweh and no other. Yahweh and Yahweh alone. He is our God. The Lord, they said, is one. And that word here, that Moses is kind of pressing upon them, here, listen, it carries a lot of significance to them, right? Like it carries a whole lot of weight, just like it does for us. Like when we're talking with one another, in like a work setting especially, if I say, do you understand what I'm saying? Do you, do you hear me? And somebody says yes, there's an implication, right? You get it. And you're going to act upon it, right? When I'm talking to my children, the way I can always guarantee, it's like I'm recalibrating them when I say, do you hear me? Do you understand? Right? There's this implication, right? And the same was true for the Jews, right? In this Jewish context, when someone says, hear, listen to me, when you say that you hear, 
When you say that, you're implying that you actually understand it, and there's a sense that your life will be defined by that reality now. Now your life will be changed by this thing you have heard and you understand, okay? And that's why immediately after Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, he immediately says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength. Think about that. Immediately he goes to this command. If you hear this, if you listen, if you really understand this, then you must devote yourself in a unique kind of way to Yahweh. You must give the whole of yourself to this God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength. If you've heard these words, you will believe and, and demonstrably be different. In the culture they found themselves in, they would be marked as unique, set apart by this set of beliefs, right? Now, keep in mind, Jesus was Jewish. Like, somewhere along the way, like, we lost touch with that. We, like, forget it. It's like, we, we get that he came from Israel, but we forget Jesus was very Jewish. He was raised in that tradition. And these words shaped Jesus, he would have prayed them over and over again throughout the course of his life. Countless times, Jesus would have spoken these words. And that's why in one of those really familiar moments from the Gospels, it's in Mark 12, one of the teachers of the law, a scribe, comes to Jesus and he asks a question, a very direct, a very pointed question. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What's the, the foremost among the commandments, the most important commandment? Tell me, Jesus kind of a hard spot like your back's against the wall when somebody asks you that kind of question i hate being asked that kind of question kyle what's your favorite band don't ask me that question get out of my face with that stuff i don't have one favorite like i don't and jesus has got to be thinking the same thing right no not at all immediately he speaks from deuteronomy 6 immediately he goes to the shema hear o israel jesus says the lord our god the lord is one you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind, he adds, and your strength. He was grounded in these words. They had shaped him. When somebody says, what's most important? He goes to the Shema. But then he adds something, right? Jesus is doing all this because he wants us to see. The, the man is asking, in essence, what does obedience look like? What does a, a good and righteous Jew look like? Tell me. What's the most important thing I need to do to be faithful and righteous in the eyes of God? What's the most important commandment? Jesus is essentially saying, obedience flows from belief. Inevitably, what we believe produces obedience. It's supposed to. And obedience cannot exist apart from belief. These two things are bound together. They're wound up in one another, and we can't separate the two. Jesus wants us to see that. He has that same understanding. If you hear and you believe, if you understand this, your life will be shaped by it. You will be becoming more and more obedient. Jesus gets it. That's why he's going back to the Shema, but he's expanding on the Shema, if you notice. He speaks those words that we read from Deuteronomy 6, but then he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus kind of builds on the Shema. Jesus is, is creating his own creed to live by. Scott McKnight wrote a book years ago called The Jesus Creed. 
That's what the whole book is about. Jesus had this creedal way of functioning. He had his own creed, his own approach to life. It had shaped him, and he taught it over and over again. He was reminding us that obedience always begins in belief. Belief inevitably leads to obedience. He's pressing that upon this man. He lived and he taught this creed, right? This is what he had been fed his entire life, and it's what the church was continuing when it wrote these creeds in the early days. It was following that same tradition. So if you think about it, the Nicene Creed, we read it this morning. It begins a lot like the Shema. We believe in one God. And that's intentional. They want it to sound like the Shema. This is their creed. When they were writing all of this down, they wanted to hearken back to all of that. But pay attention to the first phrase, right? We believe. That in and of itself was actually unique. Among all of these other creeds that existed at the time, most of them were not written in the plural. They didn't say we believe. They said I believe. The Apostles' Creed, which is where the Nicene Creed comes from was originally just in the singular, and that's because creeds began as as these baptismal traditions. You've seen it happen. We still do it very often. When someone's baptized, the person who's baptizing them might pose a question to them. Do you believe Jesus is Lord? Right? We might ask these kinds of questions, and the same thing would happen. That's how these creeds came about. It was a set of questions you would ask a, a baptismal candidate. As you're standing in the waters, maybe. You'd say, do you believe in one God, the Father Almighty? They'd say, yes. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God? And they would say, yes, right? This is how these creeds developed as a set of questions being asked. And so it was very individual. Yet the words of the Nicene Creed are plural. These are meant to be read together. It's a communal statement, a corporate statement. We believe. And think about it. In their context, that's a big deal. They're expressing unity in the midst of all of these divergent beliefs, all of these heresies, all these crazy ideas that are running through the ancient world at the time. And they're saying, we choose to believe this. And I think it's important for us for the same reason. It's really important in our cultural moment to be able to say something like that. These words are important in the midst of a church that increasingly feels more and more fractured, a culture that feels more and more fractured, right? Our culture celebrates the individual. It elevates the individual above everything else. The I comes before everything else in our culture. This is who we are. And the church, on the other hand, chooses to say something together. What defines us is this thing that we say together. And I think we all probably get that a little bit better after the last year, year and a half. I think we get it because we've seen what it's like when everybody kind of chooses for themselves what they think is best. We've seen what that looks like, right? We've watched people who will listen to someone, maybe on their their social media feed of whichever sort, who tells them the real news about this, this pandemic. The real news about this election, the real news about this vaccine. Here's what's really happening that they won't tell you, right? We've listened to it over and over again. They keep coming back to it. 
And we're drawn to it because as a generation, we value authenticity. We value honesty. It feels real. I know this guy. This guy's not getting paid. There's no advertising money in it for him. There's nobody pressuring him. Yeah, he's making it from his basement, but he's real. And this is what happens for us. We're drawn to it. He's untainted by the bias of the media machine, okay? There's no corruption possible here. This is just a guy. And I know this guy from high school or whatever it might be, right? And so what happens is when it comes to facts, when it comes to truth, for a lot of people, there's this thing happening. When it comes to facts and truth, we can lean upon what we've heard in a podcast, what we've heard on Facebook, on TikTok even. It's amazing. And when you think about it, that means our source for truth is something which is doomed to the same fate as MySpace. Our source of truth is doomed to the same fate as America Online. Like, go down the list of things. In 10 years, we'll be laughing about these things that have passed on. But if somebody says something and it gets enough likes, enough retweets, then we think to ourselves, well, I do have to take that seriously, don't I? I do have to consider that point of view, don't I? No. But that's what's happened to us over and over again. It, it validates things. People begin to think it's true. Our culture is so thoroughly built on individualism. It's so thoroughly built on the I and on capitalism and on competition, right? It shapes us in ways we don't even recognize if you think about it. That means, yes, something beautiful can happen. You can realize the American dream. You can become anything you want to. It's amazing. But it also means you might do that at the cost of someone else. The system actually rewards selfishness. It rewards the individual who is most greedy every time. And we as a culture can celebrate that, the elevation of the I above everyone else, right? It happens over and over again. But the church, every time we say this, we're choosing to elevate the we above the I. I'm choosing not just to think about what I want or what I dream of. I'm choosing to tie myself, bind myself to a group of people to this historical community of the church. I am going to be defined, my faith is going to be defined, not just by my personal individual experience, I'm going to be defined by this larger community, the church, the people of God. And I think the first phrase of the Nicene Creed sounds like the Shema on purpose because it wants to connect us to that community, the people of God who have been here from the beginning. It wants to connect us. It wants to point us back toward the Old Testament. It's like it's saying, hey, you just, you just spoke that. Now, think back to all of these stories you know of the Old Testament. It's intentionally pointing us back to this belief, this unique belief that the Jewish people held throughout their entire existence. And the church is saying, none of that changes, even in light of our belief in the Trinity. This is something that was developing, the notion of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They were just coming to understand God in this way. Jewish people were not as comfortable with it. And the church was saying, even in spite of all of that, we still believe in the oneness of God, the unity at the heart of God. He is one God. They only worship one God, they were saying. Still, they wanted to make that clear. 
The early church found itself in this religiously diverse culture, right? Probably even more so than our own. They were living in that kind of moment. And though there were many different gods they could choose to worship or that they had worshipped at some point, they were saying, we still choose now to worship only Yahweh. Only God could actually save them. Among this long list, this pantheon of gods, only he can actually save them. This is what they're getting at. We believe in the God who Jesus called Father. We believe in one God, the Father. That's the next line. We believe in the God who Jesus called affectionately, Father, Abba. We believe in, in this God, who is the father as well of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The Jews used that language for God as, as father over and over again. It was an image. His people were his children. They were his family. See, that is the, the government of the kingdom of God. It's family. It always has been. This is how God sees his people as family. Father is a familiar image over and over again. And so every time I say that, that I believe in the father, it roots me in that story. It connects me to that. The father of Jesus, the father of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The father who made a promise to Abraham and made good on it. The father who loved his children so desperately that he would send his own flesh and blood, his own son to redeem them. This is who he is. He's the, the almighty maker of, of heaven and earth, we say. He created everything, seen and unseen. That's a loaded phrase in the ancient world, especially among these Gnostic people who separate the spiritual from the physical. He's saying he created everything seen and unseen. This is, is what's so important. We believe God created from nothingness. The phrase in Latin is ex nihilo. He created from the void. There was nothingness, and he created from it. He made life where there was no life. That's what we believe. He brought everything, everything that we know and have yet to know still. He created from nothingness. It's like Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 13, he makes this statement. He says, we see as in a mirror dimly. We know in part, but then we shall know in full. The church is bearing testimony to that. He is the creator of everything, both that we know and that which we have still yet to come to know. This is amazing, what they're saying. He's the creator. But that phrase almighty, I think I, I have been guilty of just kind of like reading over, right? It, it, it's this sense of like, it's just another title. Uh, it's like a, a sort of flourish rhetorically or something. But it's not. There's more to that phrase, right? We tend to think of, of creation as this like once upon a time sort of experience. I think creation and immediately I go Genesis 1 and 2. I think Adam and Eve. I think of this poetry at the beginning of scripture telling me about how the world came to be. I think of those six days when God was creating, right? I immediately go there. But when we say we believe in the, the Father, the Almighty Maker, the Creator of heaven and earth, we're saying creation is not just a moment in history. Creation is not just this thing God did at the beginning of time. Creation is this continual act of God. God is continually creating. His creative potential knows no end. He is constantly creating. And 
Just like he once made something out of nothing, that miraculous reality continues to play out every time the sun rises and every time humanity is sustained through another pandemic. God is still creating. God is still at work. His hands are still in the world. He has not stepped back from his creation as if he's finished with it forever. He continues this work. He still values it. And I think we find ourselves especially aware of all of that in the season of Easter. Last week was good to sit and gather with everybody and celebrate the truth of of Jesus' resurrection. Because what we're celebrating, what's so captivating about resurrection is that once again, God has created from nothing. God has created ex nihilo once more. From the nothingness of the tomb, he has created. From the void, where there was no life, he has made life. Where there was only death, he has breathed life once again. He's not finished with this work of creation. And it's still going, right? That's what we we bear testimony to. As the church, we keep pointing always, not just back to to God's creative work in the beginning, but toward his creative work that is still coming. We keep pointing toward the reality of, of new creation, which has been set off in us by the gospel. We are all being made new, but not just us as individuals, right? The whole of creation is being made new. That's what we're bearing testimony to every time we speak these words. He's renewing all things. He is recreating. He's moving us toward that beautiful reality. And as the band comes, and as we move toward the table this morning, we're proclaiming that coming hope. That God didn't just create and then step back. No, God is continually making us new. He's continually making this world, this good world of his, new. When you drink the cup this morning, you can't help but be reminded of Jesus' words the first time he was sharing this cup with his disciples. He made this statement. He said, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is, is drinking the cup and he's saying, I will not share this with you again until we do it together in the kingdom. It's a reminder. This thing points us toward that new creation, that reality of the kingdom come in its fullness. God's good world restored to what he intended for it to always be, right? We're reminded of that every time, that God is not finished. He's the creator, and he's almighty. His hands are still at work in the world. We think of of the fact, even though we're eating these, these little wafers in separate sanitized packs, we can't help but remember that Jesus broke originally one loaf. He passed around one cup. And they all drank from it. They all ate from this one loaf. And there's this sense, I'm defined not just by what's going on with me. Who I am is shaped not just by my own circumstances, my own struggle, my own issues. I'm marked and defined and shaped by this larger we. We share something. We're bound together in something. Every time we come to this table.
So we just want to invite you guys, consider that this morning. Consider these words that I know you've read over and over again that may feel dry and cold to you. Allow yourself to receive them. Ponder them. Consider just how controversial they, rea- they really are. Consider how countercultural they really are. How distinct they are meant to make us as God's people. Let yourself be shaped by these ancient words and not just by the fleeting moment you find yourself living through. Amen? So we say, this is the body of Christ, broken for you, take and eat. And this is the blood of Christ, poured out for the sins of many, take and drink. Father, we just ask, Lord, that that we would be a people who are not defined merely by our own fleeting experiences. God, I pray that we would be a people who find ourselves rooted in the story of your redemption, connected to who your people are and have been throughout history. Anchor us and and ground us in these words, Lord. When we find ourselves wavering, when we find ourselves doubting, God, we just invite you. Continue to transform us. Continue to make us new. Continue to breathe life where there's only death. Continue what you've begun. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.